All right, good morning and uh, welcome. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. It's going to take us uh, a little while to get to the text itself as uh, we are at the front end or beginning a new sermon series in the book of Psalms. It's called Selections from the Psalms. And uh, we'll spend the next uh, eight, nine weeks in the Psalms uh, doing a, a variety of Psalms. And I'll tell you, I'm pretty excited about this series. In fact, I'm really excited about this series. And kind of a joke amongst pastors is uh, their favorite book is whatever book they're currently studying. And uh, that, that, that's kind of true. Uh, right now, my favorite book is definitely the book of Psalms. And if you ask me in a few months, uh, it'll be the book of Mark once we get into that. Uh, but right now, digging on the Psalms for sure. But as we begin uh, this series, uh, what I want to do is... Uh, before we get to the text and before we ever uh, walk into any particular psalm, I want to do a couple of things. As one, I want to just take a couple of minutes and frame the series and why we're doing uh, what we're doing. But I also want to take some time and frame the book of Psalms. And there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and misconceptions uh, around the book of Psalms and, and what's going on in there. And so I want to give uh, some clarity and some framework uh, to that. Because oftentimes when we think about the Psalms, uh, we rightly think that it's a great place to come for encouragement, for worship, uh, if there's lament or frustration, and that's certainly part of it. Uh, also, it's clear that, that some of the highest highs in all of the scriptures are found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, some of the loftiest uh, praise and worship uh, that's found in the scriptures. Uh, but it's also a place where some of the uh, lowest lows are found. And if you were to go to Psalm 88, for example, uh, the psalm starts out in a pretty dark and depressing place, and it only gets worse from there. Some of the highest mountain peaks and some of the deepest, darkest valleys in all of the scriptures are found in this book. Now, the psalms are a variety of, of artistic um, items. There's songs and poems and um, liturgies that show up in here, and there's a variety of types of psalms. Uh, some are prayers, uh, some are psalms of trust, some are of praise, of thanksgiving, some are instructional, uh, some are royal, there's liturgies, there's wisdom, there's laments, there's all kinds of different things, and they, and, and they serve a variety of functions and purposes. And while there's great variety in the book of Psalms, it's crucially important that we remember a few things with respect to the book. And so this isn't on the screen, but I want you to just make note of these three things with respect to the book of Psalms and helping us to rightly understand them. Make note of these three things. First of all, the New Testament treats the book of Psalms as a single book with a coherent structure. Okay, the New Testament treats the book of Psalms as a single book with a coherent structure. Luke 20, verse 41 and 42 says this, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and then begins to quote from the Psalms. You see, it's, it's a single book. It's not 150 random songs and poems and, and um, psalms that are just dumped together. Okay, this isn't David and Friends, 150 greatest hits. It's, it, th th there's an intentionality uh, to the book. So the New Testament treats the book of Psalms as a single book with a coherent structure. Secondly, the Psalms are arranged in a specific way for a specific reason. 
The book of Psalms is arranged in a specific way for a specific reason. And, and if, if on your way in this morning, hopefully you received this little half-sheet handout, and if we can put that up on the screen as well so we can look at that. We're going to talk about this here for the next couple of minutes and begin to flesh out the actual structure of the book, the, the composition of the book. Martin Luther, Martin Luther rightly said of the Psalms that the Psalms are the Old Testament in miniature, that the Psalms tell the story of the Old Testament, that they, that they uh, clue us into, they speak to of uh, the truth of what unfolded uh, throughout the Old Testament. And if you notice, as you're looking, maybe you have your Bible open to Psalm 1, as we'll be there in just a few minutes, and you'll notice at the top of that it says Book 1. If you were to flip to Psalm 42, right at the top of that it says book two, Psalm 73, book three, Psalm 90, book four, Psalm 107, book five. There are these five different books that it's arranged in. Now, now I won't tell you that each specific psalm had to come right before or right after the other. So for example, if you were to come to me and say, well, why why can't Psalm 24 come before Psalm 23? Well, it could, it just isn't. And so each and every individual psalm Eh, there's probably some variance there. But the broader picture, no doubt, there's a very clear uh, structure and there's a specific way and a specific reason for it. So let's begin to just look at this um, outline, this chart here for a moment that will help us. Uh, You'll notice Psalm 1 and 2 is the introduction to the book. Uh, That introduces the book to us. I'm not going to speak much more to that because that's where we're going to be this morning. Okay, you see at the end of the chart, uh, Psalm 146 to 150 is the close or the conclusion, uh, really a great hallelujah uh, that happens at the end of the book. And then you have these five books in between. And it's composed, they're composed by a variety of authors who lived at a variety of times. It's not chronological uh, by any means. In fact, uh, we'll see that here as we begin to move through it. But let me just begin to talk about these five books. And you'll notice there's five, um, or each book has a distinct theme. And, and I didn't come up with that. This is from a guy named David Camera. He's a pastor in the Orlando area. He was here just uh, about a week and a half ago actually teaching on uh, the book of Psalms. And I found this to be an incredibly insightful and concise Uh, breakdown of the book, and I think it's quite appropriate to share uh, with you all. But if you look at these five books, and and you look at these themes, look look for a moment here, just book one and book two. And so in book one, Psalm 3 through 41, we see that God puts his king in the world. In fact, we actually see that in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1, it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. God put his anointed into the world and the people reject that. God puts his king in the world. Here, speaking of David, though certainly from a more biblical sense, we understand this to be Jesus. The second book, God's King Trust in God, um, you see in these first two books, let me just talk about these first two books here for a moment. Uh, this really, uh, th- these two books uh, are written during the time of David and Solomon. They're written by David, by Solomon, by the sons of Korah, uh, who are contemporaries of those guys. And uh, it, it happens during that time. So God puts his king into the world, right? That's the beginning of the, of, 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 uh, the, the, the kingship in Israel. And uh, God's king trusts in God, that second portion of this. 
And that was really the golden years for Israel, that, that brief period in time uh, where, where, where the people uh, and the king loved the Lord and followed the Lord and good things happened uh, to them. Uh, so often, so often in the nation of Israel, it was true, uh, as the king went, so went the people. And unfortunately for both Israel and Judah, so many of their kings were not uh, godly kings. But in these first two books, we see God putting his king into the world, God's king trusting in God, And then in Psalm 73, we see the end of, Psalm 72 is actually written by Solomon. We see the end of that uh, time period. We see a distinctive break. Psalm 73, uh, we see God uh, begins, God punishes his king. This is the rise of the wicked. Um, Psalm 73 through 89 is a particularly dark uh, portion of the scriptures. There's some pretty dark psalms uh, in this particular stretch. And God punishing his king. It's really what we saw throughout most of the kingship of Israel. God punishing his people because of their rebellion and their rejection. And then you go to Psalm 90. In fact, flip over. I want you to see this. Flip over to Psalm 90 real quick. Uh, I want you to see this. At the top it says, a prayer of Moses. Right. Wait a second. Moses, like he lived way before those other guys. What's he doing all the way back here in Psalm 90? Well, before I answer that, if you were to flip over to Psalm 106, you'd realize that uh, Psalm 106 is all about Moses and the nation of Israel and and God leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness and things of that nature. And that bookends this fourth book. And you notice the theme there, God is still king. Okay, now think about it. Just think about it for a minute. Where we've moved so far, God puts his king in the world. Okay, Uh, God's king trusts in God. And so talking about the kingship and, and, and following them, God punishes his king. Okay, the nation of Israel rejecting God and, and, and God's consequence of them. And now, book four, God is still king. Why title it that? Why start with Moses? Why end with Moses? Well, think about it. What was going on during Moses' time? They had no land. They had no temple. Right? Um, they, they, they had no king. They were wanderers. They were wanderers. What happened in the nation of Israel's history? Right, they were eventually exiled and they too were wanderers. They had no land. They had no temple, which is the presence of God. They had no king. It's the same thing. And yet we're seeing God is still king. God's kingship has not changed. Israel's kingship has changed, but God's kingship has not changed. And then this final book, God's King Will Come, uh, really chronicles uh, the, the nation moving back into the land out of exile, Psalm 120 to 134, the uh, songs of ascent, uh, where they're coming back into uh, Israel and preparing for worship. Uh, and, and that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that time. And then this great hallelujah. And so we see the book of Psalms, all of this, this chart, all of these things to say The Psalms are arranged in a specific way for a specific reason. And as we move through the series, we want to keep this in front of us. In fact, I'd encourage you to keep this in your Bible and and utilize this, not only even in the series, but as you uh, would maybe read through the book of Psalms on your own. So I said three things I want to say. First, New Testament treats the book of Psalms as a single book with a coherent structure. Secondly, the Psalms are arranged in a specific way for a specific reason. And then thirdly, hear me when I say this. Hear me when I say this, loved ones. The Psalms are about Jesus. 
The Psalms are about Jesus because Jesus tells us that they are. Luke 24, right, after Jesus has died and rose again, he says this. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's like, they wrote about me, man. They're talking about me. They're pointing to me. You might say, well, Mike, there are certain Psalms and certain things in the law and the prophets that were messianic, and so that pointed to that. I think Luke, when, as he's writing in verse 45 there of Luke 24, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I think part of what God was doing in that moment and what Jesus was doing is he was allowing the, the disciples to begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament. No, not, the, the Old Testament authors didn't have Jesus in mind. They couldn't have told you, yeah, his, his name's Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They couldn't have told you those things. But by the inspiration of God, no doubt God had Jesus in mind, and so he was pointing us to him. Further, John 5 tells us this. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, the scriptures that Jesus references here clearly are the Old Testament. No New Testament scripture existed when he said this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The same principle is illustrated in 2 Timothy 3 as Timothy is, or it's Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, um, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Again, Old Testament writings. What about them, Paul? Why are they so important? Well, here's why. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is going to make you wise, Timothy, unto salvation in Jesus. The Psalms are about Jesus. All of them are. Some of them more specifically, more pointedly than others, but all of them very much about the person of Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. And my desire, our desire, as we move through this in the next uh, number of weeks is to see the variety of Psalms, to see the, the variety in the various parts of the book, and to move us toward the person of Jesus. And really part of our hope is that you would get a glimpse of the Psalms, that it would stir a fire in you, and you'd be like, I want more of this, and that you would devour the entire book in and of yourself. One other point about the Psalms that I think that uh, we just have to make here is that they're artistic Okay? It's, it's not flat in terms of do this, don't do this. They're, they're meant to move us. They're meant to be evocative. And so we must see them, we must hear them, but we must also feel them. Because, because so many of the Psalms, they, they don't simply just state things. Right? They, they don't say, life, life is hard. No, the psalmist is saying, why are you downcast on my soul? Okay? You, you can feel that. You can sense that. You can hear that. Not just when life is hard. No, why are you downcast? Now, for some of you, for some of you, you love to play up here, right? In the intellectual, uh, but you really struggle uh, to play here with the emotional, and the Psalms are going to push you and they're going to press you in some ways. 
And I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, that um, there were a number of years in, in my Christian life where because of that very reason, I grew up in Flagstaff. Flagstaff is kind of a unique town and that there's a ton of a kind of weird new age uh, influence there and all kinds of hippies and weird spirituality and whatnot. And so the Psalms, the Psalms to me w- felt closer to that uh, than anything else in the scriptures. And so I just put them at arm's length. And I just did the, 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 the like holy stiff arm. And I love to play up in the intellectual. I wasn't as comfortable with the emotional. And so honestly, for years, I wasted. I wasted the opportunity of diving into this amazing book. But see, when you begin to live life and you begin to have difficulties and trials and you begin to struggle and you begin to wrestle through things, th- this book, okay, this book, the book of Psalms begins to speak to us in ways Maybe no other book in the entirety of the scriptures can speak to us on. So we must see them, we must hear them, we must also feel them. I've heard it said that the point of the Psalms is to worship and praise regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in. God help us that that would be true of us. And so with that, let's um, read together Psalm 1. It says this, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me, loved ones. Jesus, we pray that you would um, grab and grip your people with the Psalms. God, we pray that you would help us to see and to identify uh, you uh, in this book, that you would help us to Um, love you greater because of this. God, that you would walk us through, um, that you would speak to us here this morning. God, not only for us, but I pray for Pastor Robert Browning and for Church of the Redeemer. God, we pray for Pastor Robert as he preaches this morning that you would be honored and glorified in his life. God, that you would uh, be moving in and through uh, that body of believers as well. And as we come now to this uh, great psalm, uh, God, that you would be lifted high in all things. So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we pray this in your name, amen. All right, Psalm 1, uh, the title of the message this morning is The Blessing of Righteousness, The Blessing of Righteousness, and uh, we made note already that both Psalm 1 and 2 uh, introduce the book of Psalms, and so uh, let me do this. Let me just take a brief moment, touch on a couple of things in verse two that help us to fully frame, fully understand the whole of what's happening here in Psalm one. And I've already read a couple of the verses there in Psalm two, and and uh, the people basically positioning themselves, plotting against the Lord's anointed. Uh, in verses four, five, and six, uh, God essentially uh, states that He's going to deal uh, with those people. Verse 7 and 8, let me read this. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So he begins to talk this language of sonship and the nations being your heritage. such a big deal in the Old Testament. And then this, 
this here. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Okay, what do we need to be wise about? What do we need to be warned about by application? That would be true of us today as well. Well, here it is, that we would serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Then he says this, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, you should probably fix that right now. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, so, so why this? Why, why connect these two? Because Psalm 1, Psalm 1, we're contrasting the righteous and the wicked. But the truth is, loved ones, the only way that you and I can truly be righteous, we don't have a righteousness in and of ourselves. I can't appeal to my works and go, God, here's why you should take me. Can't do that because we don't have that. So what's happening here is the reality that the only way that you and I can truly be righteous is to take refuge in him because we do not have a righteousness of our own. And we have to see these two together because this is how a sinner secures a blessing. It's by taking refuge in Jesus. So this is the context in which we see Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, That I take refuge in Jesus. That I serve the Lord with fear. That I'm going to serve God. I'm going to take refuge in him. And that begins to frame how it is that we see Psalm 1. So now let's focus our attention on Psalm 1 for the rest of our time, the remaining the time that we have here. Psalm 1. Three things I want you to see here in the text. The first is this. In verse 1 and 2, we see the blessing of the righteous. We see the blessing of the righteous. And uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, we, we could so easily read that and go, okay, well, here's how you arrive at a blessing. Uh, do this and this and this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you'll be blessed. See, the danger in that, especially stripping that of taking refuge in, in, in God and recognizing that we don't have a righteousness uh, in and of ourselves, we don't have a righteousness of our own to be able uh, to do that, is we begin to preach moralism. Be good and God will bless you. If you're bad, he won't. And, 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 and we reduce the text to nothing more than this works-based, duty-bound, ritualistic, obligatory salvation. If you're good, then you're blessed. If you're bad, then you're not. Now, can we agree? Loved ones, can, can we agree that it's not that simple? I know some people from a human standpoint who are incredibly righteous. And their life is miserable. Because there is trial after trial after trial after hardship after difficulty after valley. And I know people who are wicked and vile and despicable. And yet, as the psalmist say, why do the wicked prosper? And their life is amazing. So it's really not that simple. Can't boil it down that way. Further, further, is it safe to say, I think it's safe for us to say, that if we really began to press this, and we really began to press verse 1 and 2, that it describes none of us? 
mean, just be honest with yourself. I mean, the, I, I can certainly tell you that there have been plenty of times in my life where I've um, walked in the counsel of the wicked, where I've stood with sinners, where I've sat with scoffers. Uh, every moment of my life, I do not delight in the law of the Lord. I don't meditate on it day and night. It's not true of me. It's not true of you either, because the scriptures tell us that. And so if we really press this, we're forced to come to the place that there's only one who truly does this. There's only one who accomplishes verse 1 and 2 perfectly. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul, in writing to the Romans, said this. He, he, he's contrasting the, the brokenness of humanity and the sinfulness and the depravity of humanity. And he uses Adam to represent all of us. And he contrasts that with the person of Jesus and the perfect righteousness that was his. In fact, let me just read to you a couple of these verses here, uh, speaking to this contrast and the reality of what we could never do and only Christ could do. It says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and his free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In Adam's sin, uh, sin uh, in Adam's sin, all sin entered into the world and into all mankind. Through Christ, grace has abounded for many. That's what he says, verse 15. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of the sin, all are condemned. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. But because of Christ's work, we can be justified. We can be made right before God. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the, the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's only the person of Jesus who can accomplish this. And it's because of that work and because of what he's doing within us that we now begin to look at Psalm 1 and go, by the power of Christ within me, this is how I begin to live life. So notice the blessing of the righteous, two things specifically about this. The psalmist first tells us what the righteous do not do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The blessed do not walk in sinfulness. The blessed do not walk in sinfulness. I love the statement, choose to sin, choose to suffer. When we choose sin, we choose the consequences and the suffering that comes with it. And here the psalmist is talking about a habitual practice, a continual sin in our lives. The blessed do not walk in sinfulness. Now let's just press in on each of these items here for just a moment. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked? Walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is the notion, right, that we allow others to speak into our lives. You, you and I are receiving input and counsel constantly. We may not be aware of it. We might not identify it as such. But we are constantly having input and counsel come into us. But here specifically, it's I'm seeking out uh, the, the, the wicked for my counsel or my input. Uh, simply put, this is godless counsel. Now we see this. We see this in a variety of ways today in all kinds of different manifestations and how we arrive there. But I think as believers, maybe even for non-believers, but certainly for believers, one of the ways that we arrive there, maybe one of the primary ways that we arrive here is, is I want to follow Jesus but I also want the scriptures to say blank. 
You just go ahead and fill in the blank on what that might be. I want the scriptures to tell me that it's okay to sin my face off. I want the scriptures to tell me that I don't have to sacrifice. I want the scriptures to tell me that I can do whatever I want. I want the scriptures to tell me that my feelings are more important than God's glory. You go on and on and on with that, but you just fill in the blank. We want that. And so what we do is I'm going to go and I'm going to find someone or something who will say it. I'll find a pastor or a church or a friend or maybe I'll just ignore it altogether. It's kind of like, here's how it played out in my life for, for a number of years. When I was in high school, I wasn't really all that into my parents' counsel. I uh, didn't really like what they had to say on certain things. And so uh, I would seek counsel from them. They wouldn't give me what I wanted. So what did I do? Right. I went to my buddies. I went to someone who was equally foolish and equally ignorant to give me um, foolish and ignorant counsel. And it's what I got, right? It's exactly what I got. Now, I'm not saying that only high school students do this. I know plenty of adults who do this on a regular basis as well. But it's the idea that I'm seeking counsel for something that I know that is wrong. So just ask yourself, have you ever sought counsel on a decision that you knew that was wrong, but you went looking for someone to tell you that it was right? A relationship, a a business deal, an action, a behavior, an activity... See, what it really boils down to is this, is, is do, do I want God's word to adjust my life? Is God's word over me, right, in a way that I'm here, God's word is up here, and, and so we're at odds with each other, but God's word is the authority in my life, therefore I adjust my life to it. Do I want God's word to adjust my life, or do I want my life to adjust God's word? And now, see, I'm on top of the scriptures and I impose my will my desire my intentions on them the blessed do not walk in the counsel of the wicked they walk in the counsel of the word is that true of us notice this secondly they do not stand in the way of sinners they do not stand in the way of sinners now this is this is not standing in opposition or resistance to sinners this is participation with them it's that we make ourselves complicit We could be actively or passively complicit, but either way, I'm in agreement and I'm with them. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, right? They conspired to withhold some of their money and they were going to lie about it. They're probably both uh, actively uh, involved in that. They're both complicit. Even if only one of them had the idea and the other one went forward with it, they're still both in it. Both complicit. The religious leaders at times were active and at other times they were passive with respect to Christ's death. They couldn't give the ultimate order. But boy, they sure manipulated the system. Are there areas in your life where you're complicit? Are Are there areas where you stand with sinners? It blesses the man who does not do this. Blessed do not walk in sinfulness. Thirdly, they do not sit in the seat of scoffers. It's the idea of being able to sit back and mock what happens. Uh, Essentially, it's that I would position myself in a seat of judgment. That I would become the ultimate authority and I would become the judgment or the arbiter over all things. Now, of course, this is going to be massively contrasted a few verses later. 
And there's, there's so much, so much that I could say about our current state of affairs and, and um, how this is playing out and different ways in which this happens within us. Suffice to say, I think I'd just go back to what we said just a few minutes ago. Does God's word adjust my life? Or do I attempt to allow my life to adjust God's word? The blessed do not walk in sinfulness. Notice this secondly, look at verse two. The blessed delight in God's word. The blessed delight in God's word. Look at what it says here. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, the law of the Lord is a phrase that's used in a number of places in the Old Testament to reference God's word. Exodus 13, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, just this phenomenal psalm about the fullness of God's word. In fact, um, we were going to preach out of Psalm 119 during this series, and and I realized you can't do 176 verses in a week, and I wasn't going to cut any of it out. And so at some other point in time, We'll do a little mini-series just on that particular psalm. 176 phenomenal verses around the scriptures. Okay, but the law of the Lord. Okay, he's talking about the law of the Lord. And they delight in it. See, they delight in God's word. They love God's word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, uh, that word delight, it literally means a pleasure, a longing. It's what I want. Now, as you read this... (laughs) As you read this, you can't help but see that emotional, evocative component. Because you don't really like, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, you don't think, well, they do it. They tolerate it. They did their obligatory reading. It's like, no, we want it. It's, it's our pleasure. It's our longing. It's what we're after in this. We long for this. Now, <clears throat> I think this delight and this pleasure and this longing is found, it's found no doubt in the law of the Lord, but I think that part of it, part of their de- delight is tied to their learning of God, but I think it would be, we would be remiss to not um, drive home the point that I think it presses beyond that to a, light, a, de- to a delight in God himself. <clears throat> I think they delight in the law of the Lord because they delight in the Lord. They love God. And because they love God, they love his word. And they love his word because they love God. Do you see how that works? Just ask yourself now, do, do do I delight in the law of the Lord? Is my longing fulfilled in God's word? Is my longing and desires and pleasure fulfilled in the person of God? Or is it found somewhere else? And it's usually here, right? You start talking about the Bible and us loving it and, and, and being in it and allowing it to shape us. This is usually where the excuses start to show up. Like the Bible is, it's kind of boring. Wait, wait, wait. Are we talking about the same book? Like, are we reading the same book here that the Bible is boring? Yeah, the Bible is boring or I don't, I don't have time for it. I don't get anything out of it. It doesn't make sense to me. I could name a host of other excuses. I think the point is clear. The problem with most, with maybe even all of our excuses, comes down to the fact that our longing isn't fulfilled in God. It's fulfilled in ourselves. I don't love God's word because I don't love God at least not as much as I love myself or some other thing. 
<laughs> That's part of what's going on. And when you think about all those statements I just said, all those statements, are, they're really about us. I don't have time. I don't get anything out of it. I think it's boring. See, it's, it's me-centered. It's consumer Christianity at its finest. But we don't love the law of the Lord because we don't love the Lord. Our issue isn't with the word. We don't, we, we don't have a word problem. We have a God problem. And, and it's not that I can't read. It's not that I don't want to read. It's that I don't love the Lord, therefore I don't read. Now, you might legitimately have uh, some certain things that, that make it difficult for you to do that. My, my, brother, my brother is like insanely dyslexic. I mean, he's like redlining on that, okay? And, and yet, I used to watch him just slog through the scriptures. And he would read stuff, be like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. But he kept doing it. Listen, he kept doing it because he loved the Lord. And because he loved the Lord, he loved the things that God loved. And so even though there are times where he's like, I didn't understand a word I just read, he did it because he loved God. Of course, now he listens to all of it, and it has radically changed things. And so some of you, you there might be certain things that make it difficult for you. You don't have to actually read them and listen to it. Have someone else read it to you. Find, find ways to, to, to um, overcome that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about here that our issue is our issue ultimately is with God is in that we don't love him. Now, ironically, ironically, one of the ways in which we address that is through the word. And I love what the author of Hebrews tells us about Moses. Remember um, the, the, the hall of faith, the champions of faith, that chapter, speaking of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> Sorry, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That'd be kind of weird if he was called Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, okay, so let me just start over. My faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, he took suffering over instant gratification and over instant satisfaction of sin. Why? Why? Here's why. Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, God was his reward. He delighted in God, therefore he delighted in the word, and he delighted in the word because he delighted in God. The blessed, the blessed delight in God's word. They delight in the word. They also meditate on the word. Right on his word, on his law, he meditates day and night. It's the same word that we see in chapter two, verse one, where the people plot. It means to ponder, to plot, to mutter, to mull over. It's the going over and over and over again of the word. It's allowing the word to permeate our entire being. It's that I'm permeated, saturated, steeped in God's word. This whole week I've been battling this, this cold and so I don't, I don't normally drink uh, many hot drinks. In fact, I don't even like hot drinks but I've been drinking some tea this week and so uh, this one particular evening I was um, getting a, a cup of tea and I put the, the tea bag in the water and it was in there for about two seconds and what happens instantly, you put the tea bag in and boom, the water, the color of the water has changed. But if I took the tea back out and in fact I even thought in that moment, like, it'd be funny you know, if I, it looks like tea but it doesn't taste like tea. Now it's just kind of a little bit funky taste in water that looks, it's got kind of an odd color to it. 
Because the purpose of tea is that it has to steep. Right? The flavor comes out as, as, as it's permeated and saturated within. And that, that the tea will eventually permeate and saturate the water. And that should be our same approach to the word. A casual reading of the scripture, much like we would read a news article or an op-ed piece, isn't going to allow God's word to permeate or to steep within us, loved ones. We have to meditate on the word. We have to let it steep. We have to let it permeate and saturate the whole of who we are. The blessing of the righteous here, these final two will come quickly now that we've really framed um, these two items. Notice then this secondly, verse three and four, the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. And so notice, right, the imagery that's used here in the text. Speaking of the righteous, he's like a tree. Okay, got the image in your mind? Can you see it? Like a tree. Now let's, let's, let's uh, flesh out the image a little bit more. Planted by streams of water. What does a tree that's planted by streams of water look like? It's strong, it's healthy, it's mature. Because even in the scorching heat, even in the drought, it still feeds itself. I mean, we, we get this. We live in a desert. And you, you go down on the bosque, and there's huge, enormous, healthy, strong, mature trees. And even a few years ago, when it wasn't raining anywhere uh, in the state, right, they, they, they were trees, and, and they were by a stream. Okay, let's not fool ourselves. That's not a river. Okay, that's a stream at best. But they were streams, or they, they were trees planted by streams, weren't they? And so you've got the righteous, and he gives this picture, big, strong, healthy, productive, immovable tree. It's kind of a pretty cool picture. And then notice he, he's going to contrast that, right? He says the righteous, they're like this tree. Now, now let me just say this real quick. Those who del- delight in the Lord are like this tree. He doesn't say that everything's okay. Remember, the point of the Psalms is to worship regardless of circumstance. He doesn't say, well, there's not going to be times of drought. It's not, there's not, he doesn't say there's not going to be times of heavy wind. Or, he's just saying, listen, those who are righteous, this is what they look like. Because they're planted near the source. And so then he contrasts that. Right? He takes that image of this strong, healthy, productive, mature, immovable tree. And then look what he says in verse 4. The wicked are not so understatement of the year. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, chaff. You know what chaff is here? Let me, let me show you. I've got, I've got some hay here. Uh, and, and, and chaff, uh, chaff was, is essentially like the husk or the outer lining or the shell around a seed. In, in the Old Testament, it talks about winnowing and threshing. What they would do is they would uh, have this activity where they would separate the seeds from um, the husks and the shells and they would separate the two and the, and the chaff would be blown out and burnt and destroyed. And so he's, he's contrasting here, right? He's contrasting. You get this big, strong, immovable, mature tree. And then right in my hand, can you see it? Can you see the hay? And then check it out. Watch this, watch this. With just the simplest of breaths. It's gone. Scattered. It's blown away. And this... Picture. I mean, look, look, look at this. Look at this. Here, here you, you, want, you want to blow on that? Blow on that. Right all, right all over me. Thanks. Um, but you see the picture? 
the imagery, the one who puts their trust in the Lord, who takes refuge in him, who lives in God's way. Strong, mature, immovable tree. The one who rejects that, the one who wants to go on their own, the one who says, I'm going to do my thing. Chaff. Blown away. The righteous will be found as strong. The wicked will be discarded as waste. Here's the final thing, just briefly. Look at verses five and six. We see the demise of the wicked. The demise of the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two things, two things I wanna just point out uh, to us here in the text uh, with respect to the demise of the wicked. First of all, they will not stand in judgment. They will not stand in judgment. Now, this is a stark contrast to them sitting in judgment. Right, I'm gonna sit essentially on the throne in judgment and I gotta say, not only are you not in the judgment seat, there's only one who's in the judgment seat. His name is Jesus. And not only are you not sitting there, you won't even stand through the judgment that they will succumb to judgment. But not only that, I think we have to talk about this other piece, this, this twofold aspect. One is that they're not gonna succumb to judgment, but two, that there's a vindication for the righteous. David in Psalm 3 says this, he says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Like, man, that's my life. That's the whole of who I am. Afflicted. And the psalmist goes on to say, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Now listen to this next line. The plowers plowed upon my back. Can you see them with the plow digging into their back and just plowing into them and, and the hurt and the pain in that. They may long their furrows. And then the psalmist says this, the Lord is righteous. He cuts the cords of the wicked the demise of the wicked, they will not stand in judgment. They won't stand in judgment. That image of the chaff being blown away, such a strong connotation of what's gonna happen there. They will not stand in judgment. Notice this secondly, that they will perish. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a strong reality that must be considered here that those who would reject God's decree will find themselves ultimately perishing. It's the ultimate punishment of the wicked. Now, make no mistake, loved ones, make no mistake. God takes no pleasure in this. Ezekiel 33 tells us this, that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. God does not delight in it, but he will do it. It's a strong warning for us to consider. It's a warning to consider in our own lives that we, would, that we would take refuge in him, that we would serve him, that we would put all of our hope in him at the end of Psalms 2 and not in and of ourselves. 
But once we've squared that away, I, I'll tell you, man, I've, I thought briefly about myself reading verse 6, but then my mind started going to different people in my life that I love dearly, that God has put before Becky and I, and, and in and around our family that we love dearly, that are just far from God. And we should read this and we read about the wicked perishing and our heart's response should be like God's response that we take no pleasure in it, but that it grieves us and it breaks us to consider this reality is true. Demise of the wicked. They will not stand in judgment. They will perish. We have the blessing of the righteous, the contrast of the righteous and the wicked, the demise of the wicked. You see just even those three things, that strong contrast that exists there. There's only one way. There's only one way for a sinner to secure blessing, and it's to take refuge in the Son. So as God works within us, God help us by His grace that He would allow us to live this way. Let's pray.